I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Why in this nation do black Americans wake up knowing that they can lose their life in the course of just living their life? Part of the point of freedom is to be free from brutality, from injustice, from racism, and all of its manifestations. This president's policies are not about immigration. It's about ethnicity and racism. We fought Jim Crow with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Yet we continue to confront racism from our past and in our present, which is why we must hold everyone from the highest offices to our own families accountable for racist words and deeds and call racism what it is, wrong. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I just want to start today's show with a word about our producer, Melissa Kaplan. Singer, knife thrower, activist, longtime journalist, Melissa brings discipline and sensitivity, virtuosity and imagination to the making of Trumpcast. They also bring vast reserves of punky DIY spirit. And since COVID, they've been booking all the guests and producing basically everything you hear on the show, from the clips to the ads to the voices, including mine, which sounds suspiciously good once Melissa edits and sweetens it a little. They're like a millennial answer to punk, a kind of DIY spirit who can actually play the instruments. Anyway, I had to give Melissa Kaplan a big thank you today. I also have to stop sounding so elegiac and valedictory and as if Trumpcast might be ending its... It's very odd to be in this suspended state of not knowing what the next um, season of Trumpcast might be and whether the show might, for instance, have a different um, focus or a different name. I mean, I'm not saying anything. I'm just talking about the show. I'm not saying anything about November. What am I, about to invite the Kanahara, the evil eye? I'm just saying that life has changed. And maybe Donald Trump will not be president of the United States forever, but maybe he will. I mean, all that is solid melted into air in 2016, and it's it stayed melted. I picture the original hot mess, like a kind of Exxon Valdez situation since then. And into this ooze, we've thrown the American language, which Trump, in his riffs about the many strokes he didn't have and the many soup cans that no one threw, seems hell-bent on dissolving into sewage. So if the language melts, maybe President Trump will never die. And with Trump urging people to vote twice now and saying he's going to serve three, four or five terms and then hand things off to his son, Don Jr., well, anything can happen. But please, God, don't let it. My guest today is Paul Butler. He's a professor at Georgetown University Law Center, a former trial attorney with the U.S. Department of Justice. He is the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Paul and I got to know each other, appearing on MSNBC, and he gave me a copy of Chokehold, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Chokehold, Policing Black Men by Paul Butler. Welcome to Trump Gas, Paul. Hey, it's great to be here. So a headline, I don't know if you saw this, but recently described the murder of Jacob Blake, 
obviously the the man shot seven times in the back by a white police officer in Kenosha, Wisconsin, as a wake up call. And I feel like if we're not responding to the wake up calls, a, a bellman should go up and see if we're dead, you know, <laughs> if we haven't responded yet, because we might have woken up with slavery or lynchings or Rodney King or Amadou Diallo. I know for myself, that video of Rodney King is what did it for me. I can't say, you know, I've understood this problem all this time, but at least that in, you know, Rodney King and then the uprising after that. But evidently, it's the August 2020 shooting of Jacob Blake and not even the murder of George Floyd, which woke up the world to our American problems, that seems to be waking people up or allegedly waking people up. My question is, why are we always re-waking up to this problem? I mean, why is it that, you know, George Floyd was supposed to close the book on this and the summer wasn't even over before we had a Jacob Blake? (laughs) Yeah, so I think this is the summer that many white people got woke. Yeah. Uh, African-American people didn't really need the wake-up call because with both women and men, this is our experience with the criminal legal process and with police specifically. So people wonder if there's something different about this moment. And Mm -hmm. I'm starting to think that there might be. So... First, when you look at some of the polls, most Americans support the movement for Black lives. The New York Times described it as the most successful social protest movement in the history of the United States. And the reason that's important is because people tend to have a lot of myths around social justice movements in the past. So we have a holiday for Martin Luther King. Now we have schools named after Malcolm X. Back in the day, man, if you look at their polling, even when he was assassinated, most Americans thought that Martin Luther King did more harm than good, that he wasn't patient enough. Hmm. And in general, they didn't support the civil rights movement in terms of its leaders and its tactics, even if in general, they supported the idea of equal rights. So what's different now is that in real time, you have many Americans, including most white Americans, who this summer have woken up to the Mm. fact that the police treat people of color differently than they treat white folks, and especially African-American people. And they've also importantly woke up to the idea that this is systemic, that these Mm -hmm. problems are structural. I mean, I'm really glad to hear you say that that you feel like Black Lives Matter has been successful. As you probably know, you know, there was a real head of steam around me, too. And there's now a lot of come down that not enough changed. And the Women's March was the most you know, successful march in world history until this protest movement. And so I'm glad to hear you say that it's not um, the more things change, the more things stay the same or, you know, that we'll name a road or a corner after George Floyd and then be done with it and assume it's over. I think your point that there's some kind of realization that murderous racism is systemic also acknowledges that it's ongoing, you know, that we're not done. We'll never be done. And that I think goes to this wake up call thing, because if 
you, if we think that something's finished, that desegregation finished off racism, that as a lot of Trump supporters say, racism, anti-black racism is not a problem anymore. The mistake is getting in our heads that this is something that can we can be done with. Yeah. That it's a short event and that abolition, desegregation, uh, you know, the the apotheosis of Martin Luther King says it's over. Exactly. You know, we don't do we don't lynch anymore, so it must be over. But what you're saying is recognizing that it's systemic is not just recognizing we need to pull all the wires out of our heads and our systems, but that we recognize that it will never be over. Yeah. The recognition is just step one. That's part of a, a long mm-hmm. process. So I think of myself as kind of optimistically pessimistic. <laughs> so Okay, I like it. The reason that this feels different is part evidence-based. So there are 18,000 different police departments in the United States, and they're controlled mainly by county governments and state governments, not by the federal government. That means that it's incumbent on governors and mayors and police chiefs and city and state lawmakers to make the difference. The good news is that we don't have to worry about Mitch McConnell for 90% of what happens in the criminal legal process because the federal government, Trump, McConnell, Nancy Pelosi have no control over that. They have some kind of budget authority. So the power of the purse strings Mm -hmm. to a limited extent, but the main women and men in charge are the mayor, the governor, the police chief. And if we look at what's going on in the States, it's a lot more encouraging than what's happening Mm -hmm. on the federal level where the, George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, co-sponsored by Kamala Harris. Whatever happened to her? Uh, but she was co-spon- <laughs> co-sponsored. She, she, she ran for president and now she disappeared. Okay. Yeah, well, ho- ho- hopefully we'll, <laughs> we'll hear from her again at some point. But yeah, she, yeah. And, she and Cory Booker uh, were the Senate co-sponsors of this bill that would institute these major important reforms and again, try to exercise some federal oversight doesn't look like it has a whole lot of legs at this moment, but in states, it's incredible. So in LA, in New York, there's conversations about defunding the police. That's crazy, Virginia. Can you imagine? I know. I didn't even know that phrase. And then I used it and then was sternly corrected that it's an abolition of the police. Um, And not, you know, I think I said police reform originally. And then someone said, no, it's defund. And then it became abolition. And it is amazing that it, it it's quickly gone that far to, to, yeah, things that would have been unthinkable. Yeah. So it means different things to different people. Even Trump's executive order, weak as it was on police reform, kind of paid homage to the idea. So I think the central idea of defund the police is that when people call 911, often having somebody with a gun show up makes things worse, not better. So people call 911 about things like a crisis in a relationship, an issue arising from homelessness or addiction, uh, beef between neighbors. You don't need a, a woman with a big gun or a man with the power to arrest to address that. So even Trump's executive order acknowledges the need for what he calls coal first responders. So he says mm-hmm. with the lady with a gun would be somebody who's 
healthcare provider, or somebody who knows how to intervene with crisis. And again, that's part of defund the police. It's the idea that money that goes to the men and women in blue might instead go to community services, to violence prevention, to health care. Mm-hmm. And again, we're winning. It doesn't look like it, I know, right now, but I think we are. People, I'm always getting complaints about the movement for Black lives in terms of its unorthodox tactics. For example, who are the leaders? Uh, people call me up. We want to talk to a spokesperson. They don't have a spokesperson. So the idea is that in previous racial justice movements, the leaders have always been charismatic, heterosexual black men. And when that leader is eliminated, that is, he gets assassinated, he dies, he gets discredited, he gets arrested, then the movement loses its force. That's interesting. Yeah. So the movement for black lives was famously started by three black women, two of whom identify as queer, and they wanted to make a difference in part for the gender justice piece and the racial justice piece, but in part, it's just a damn smart strategy. So they say, we're not leaderless, we're leaderful. And again, maybe if nobody had heard of them and there wasn't any evidence of its success, that would be wrong. But I think they're, I think we're, we're winning. And again, on the state level, especially lots and lots of reform that have already been enacted, chokehold bans, uh, kind of racial justice training for police officers, lots of important reforms. But you also mentioned the Me Too movement. And what I think this movement has in common is the metrics for success. So I was thinking earlier about the, the, the fight for uh, LGBT equality. And there, uh, especially in the kind of the traditional white male leadership, the goals were to get the military to stop discriminating and, and to have marriage equality. And those are hard fought, difficult goals that, especially with regard to marriage equality, on the one hand, you could say it happened incredibly quickly. There was a lot of work that went on, but then it did happen. And now, thankfully, uh, people can get married to who they love and the military no longer kicks out gay and lesbian people, still does transgender people, which is wrong. Uh, in terms of the law, though, the ask was for the military to stop discriminating, and it largely has to get a, another president. It will stop doing that against uh, transgender folks, too. And people can get married to who they love. So that's a form of winning. But the Me Too movement, again, it's a fight against sexual harassment, against misogyny, uh, against discrimination on the basis of gender. How do you measure success? That's not just Congress passing a law or the Supreme Court making a ruling. And it's the same thing with regard to the movement for Black lives. So what we need is for the police to stop beating up, killing, arresting Black folks in situations in which they wouldn't do that to white folks. And that's not something that you can get with a law necessarily or a Supreme Court case. And so all these reforms are a means to an end. And we got to see, again, if the ends 
if the end happens, if the reforms are successful. They're new, these state laws, but right now we know that every year the police kill about a thousand people. And in 2020, you're right on target for killing around a thousand people. By the end of the year. Yes. Uh, okay. I'm going to tentatively respond or push back on or qualify the analogy of the movement for gay marriage to Black Lives Matter. Okay. And I I know that the, the gay marriage movement is cited as a great success. And how did we change so rapidly and overnight? And what came to mind as I was waking up this morning, I was sort of brooding on the success of Black Lives Matter. And I was thinking about something my former professor, Stephen Greenblatt said, actually, you might have, if you ever crossed the yard when you were in law school, maybe you ran into him. But he said, it stayed with me for a long time, and I don't know quite what to make of it. Maybe you can help me. That he was talking about the the spice trade and the Silk Road and saying that the only reason that a people, a tribe, ever tries to understand another tribe is when they need to sell them something. Mm. It's a really powerful point. And, you know, why learn another language? Why learn what Mongolians would want as opposed to certain groups of Chinese? Because you're trying to find out how you can make these spices valuable to them. And there was, you know, in the gay community anyway, there's a little pushback on the gay marriage thing, partly because at least some that I worked with in ACT UP didn't like the domestication of gay sexuality. They didn't want the marriage plot to tie them down. And they sort of saw it as excessive domestication and civilization of this thing. But even leaving those that aside, that you could merchandise that movement. You know, I was queer eye for the queer eye. Now I was looking at it and just like a shop-a-thon, you know, (laughs) and uh, you know, people like Pete Buttigieg are upper middle-class married men who like look really good in a capitalist system. They buy a lot, they make a lot, they spend a lot. And what is interesting to me about Black Lives Matter is that it doesn't merchandise and it doesn't encourage people to see young black men as consumers that they might that might be co-opted. It's an outside a kind of market capitalism in a way that other movements, even I got to say, like my beloved Women's March, you know, partly you can't sell people much during a pandemic. You know, people aren't going out for Black Lives Matter and then like sitting at cafes and picking up something (laughs) at Chanel, you know, and if there's enough looting by extremely poor people, it's the reverse, (laughs) right? It's like, it's really revolutionary. So that also, that interests me. And then if you could speak to it being an anti-capitalist or at least extra capitalist outside of capitalist movement, And also, I was talking to some religious people uh, advising Joe Biden, and they were thinking about how it's not a Christian movement, strictly speaking. So not only does it not have a typical hierarchy with a charismatic male leader, but it's also somewhat anti-capitalist. Maybe the presence of, you know, other white protesters on the far left who are also anti-capitalist has helped that. And then also the absence of a preacher, like Martin Luther King. Right. I mean, it's extraordinary. In other words, if this movement succeeds, it succeeds entirely on its merits. There's, it seems to me that there's no sucking up to any establishment, that this is, there's something more, um, I don't know, organic about this 
um, than anything else, or at least, yeah. Anyway, I don't want to keep going on, but but what do you make of any of that—the anti-capitalist part or the or the uh, you know irreligious part? You are preaching today, Reverend Virginia. So, <laughs> Secular preaching. Uh, lots of lots of thoughts, riffs. So one again, thinking about the comparison contrast with the uh, mainstream LGBT movement. So yeah. the left critique. And it's partly a, a intersectional critique and a race critique of that mainstream movement is that those leaders who were mainly white gay men, uh, middle income or upper income, they chose the most traditional parts of society to try to integrate military yeah. and marriage. Man, how traditional slash conservative can you get? Yeah. So. Part of the concern was that these were white boys who, because they were gay, had been left out of the club and they just wanted to get back in the club. Yeah. And I go back and forth. Uh, a lot of black folks, Asian American folks, Latinx folks I know have gotten married because of the success of that movement. Uh, a lot of people who were in the military um, have been able to be out in the military. You know, uh, people criticize Michelle Obama for military families because it's a, that's, you know, that's something that maybe Eisenhower would have done. You should be doing something different, First Lady Michelle Obama. I think what she understood is that that was a class intervention, intervention that the people who, who joined the military are, are working class. Uh, many haven't gone to college and this is a, a route to success. And so lots of my African-American friends who are gay have actually been in the service. And so all that's to say is I get the left critique, but I also want to acknowledge that the movement, even as uh, formed by those upper middle class white gay men, uh, has been beneficial to lots of other folks. But the left critique mainly is it's not really a queer movement to integrate marriage and the military. And so the way I hear your question, Virginia, is what's queer about the movement for Black lives? Hmm. Is, it, is it wanting something different from, you know, what we've thought of as a politics of respectability in terms hmm. of the civil rights movement? You know, mm -hmm. so when we remember those icons, Martin, Malcolm, Rosa, they were so well-dressed. I remember those suits that Martin Luther mm -hmm. King had on. Malcolm mm -hmm. X was a fly brother, but fly in almost a traditional sense, right? The jacket, uh, the shirt, the tie. <laughs> the movement for Black Lives feels less respectable, right? It feels yes. queerer in that sense. And then the other part I heard is, well, what's the ask? Is the ask respectability? Is the ask mere equality with white folks, which I always think black people who want to be equal to white folks lack ambition, hmm. uh, to paraphrase a, a feminist maxim. Uh, <laughs> they used to say women who want to be equal to men lack ambition. And so yeah. I think what's queer about the movement for black lives is that it's insisting on structural change. It's saying that reform is not enough, that the problems are so entrenched 
that transformation is the better way of looking at it. And so that's how we start talking about things like defund the police or abolish prison. And so, again, I think what it understands is that policing is a symptom. The disease is white supremacy. The disease is patriarchy. I think everybody in this collective called the Movement for Black Lives understands that. But Virginia, you went to the heart of the question because then is the disease also capitalism, right? Yeah. I think that there's less of a consensus among folks in the movement uh, about whether capitalism is up there with white supremacy and patriarchy as part of the problem. No doubt the the three women who started the movement, I think they get it. I think they would diagnose capitalism as part of the uh, problem. Uh, I don't know if everybody in this big tent uh, of the movement for black lives is there. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Maybe you can now talk about, speaking of conservative institutions, you can talk about Christianity, Protestantism. Like, there's so many parts of the I Have a Dream speech that don't get talked about, the can't, the check that comes back insufficient funds and all those things. <laughs> super interesting. But one of them is that I think after... King says, talks about black and white integration. He talks about Protestants and Catholics. Like the, you know, so Protestantism is extremely important to him. And that Protestantism, in some cases, morphed into evangelicalism that we have right now, which enshrines white supremacy, at least in its current iteration. Um, Mm -hmm. So that some Protestants who might have white Protestants who might have considered themselves king people may have ended up in not quite liberty and Falwell territory, but something adjacent to it. Um, And what they had in common with King was a commitment to a kind of Protestant idiom, you know, that he he uses stuff from the King James Bible. He sounds like a preacher. He dresses well, as you say. So, but we don't have that at all with the with the three women founders of Black Lives Matter and Black Lives Matter. And and I will say one of those women once told me, stop talking about, because she had advised the Women's March, stop talking about this as an organic movement. There's nothing organic at all in how we organize. When you're getting porta potties, when you're getting your, you know, when you're uh, at the last minute choosing the place to meet, all that stuff is very, very coordinated. So to say organic is probably, you know, probably not quite fair. But what I mean is it has the illusion, like you say, of a flat hierarchy of um, you can't, there's no one to assassinate, put it that way. You know, Mm -hmm. there's no Mm -hmm. one that like the, without which it would not exist. So Anyway, what do you say about about Christianity in this? Because Christianity has been a tool both of liberation from racism and perpetuation, obviously, of racism. And I think for some former white or some Kennedy liberals, 
or that from that era, king, king liberals, they don't recognize Black Lives Matter as part of their broader social justice, liberation theology set of beliefs. So anyway, help me with that. Like Jesse Jackson's back on stage right now, and I don't know what Black Lives Matter thinks of him, for instance. So part is just the organic changing of the guard. So <laughs> use organic in a bad way in the way that you you got that comment. So yeah. it, it's certainly right that the movement for Black Lives has been extraordinarily strategic and savvy. And the way that they've marshaled Black Twitter, you know, mm -hmm. it's funny, mm -hmm. you know, we've been on TV a lot together, Virginia, and you've heard me say um, nasty things about the President of the United States and the Attorney <laughs> General. I'm not scared of them. I'm scared to death of Black Twitter. Oh, yeah. I don't want Black Twitter coming after me, right? <laughs> and so the movement has been extraordinarily skillful at mm -hmm. using those kinds of resources. So it's a new day. And I think the church, uh, either in the sense of kind of the white church or the black church, which has always been more progressive, and I apologize that I don't have enough information about uh churches and communities that aren't African-American or, or white, even though I know there are lots of uh, those kinds of, of churches that serve, you know, our Native and Latinx and Asian-American sisters and brothers, and even some integrated churches, right? But in none of those churches, especially, again, the Black church, the white church, do I have a sense that, you know, they're walking in lockstep with the movement. And with the white church, I think it's the same old, same old, the anti-Blackness the mm -hmm. discrimination, uh, the unwillingness to integrate. Uh, and with the African-American church, in some sense, I think it's just about respectability and kind of uh, a lack of comfort with uh, the radicalism of mm -hmm. many folks in the movement. And, you know, I, I think that homophobia in the Black community gets way over-discussed. I don't think the African-American community is, is more anti-gay than, than any other community. And I think there's actually a lot to support the idea that uh, Black folks are, are less homophobic and, and more welcoming. But that's a, mm. a different conversation. But the point is that there certainly are some conservative elements in the Black church. And there are some people who have these old school notions about uh, masculinity and sexuality that would also make them less receptive. But uh, I do see lots of churches, including uh, the church that I, I go to in New York City sometimes, that are welcoming of the movement uh, mm -hmm. because A, they, they see it as Christian based, not so much in terms of uh, the orthodox kind of text but in terms of the radical demands for justice yeah. and justice for the least of those mm -hmm. and measuring success, not by how well people at the top are doing, uh, but how well people at the bottom are doing. And so I don't think it's the intent from the uh, folks in the movement isn't specifically Christian or religious. Uh, I do think it's spiritual, though. So it's spiritual in the sense that one of the values is something called black joy. Hmm. Oh, yes. Yes. I just started to see this phrase. 
And also, and just prior to that, the reclaiming of the idea from black women that self-care is a radical act. Um, That, yeah, black joy. Tell me about black joy. So it is about self-care and it's about understanding that that survival is an act of resistance. And that through, you know, 400 years of entrenched white supremacy, slavery, followed by the old Jim Crow, followed by the new Jim Crow, that not only are we still here, that we have the capacity to be joyful and that we experience moments of joy. Some of it is cultural. Yeah. Jazz, gospel, hip hop. Rock and roll, so much black creativity, so much black excellence. I go back and forth about that phrase because it sounds a little like respectability, but in terms of the contributions that African American people have made, the scientific, the engineering, the legal, uh, we have a lot to be joyful about. And if we turn to the diaspora, even more. So. It's important to, to recognize that and to sub- celebrate that. Uh, not only that we're still here, but that we love each other, right? That black people loving being black is an act of self-care and resistance and a cause for joy. So, you know, us egghead academics like to unpack and analyze stuff. So I think we're going to see some some serious studies about black joy. But one of the things I love about this movement is it's not coming, it's not inspired by academics or politicians or judges. It's inspired by transgender women of color, right? It's inspired by people who can't call the police because the police are going to mess with them, but they need some kind of intervention because when they walk down in the street, they get messed with too. So who are you going to call? That's a hard question, right? But those are the kinds of issues that this movement is grasping with. And in the midst of all that, people are exercising self-care. People are taking care of their sisters and their brothers, and people are finding joy. That's extremely powerful and illuminating. We've talked a lot on the show about diseases of despair in red states, so much that a study early in the Trump presidency showed that Trump supporting is a pre-existing condition for diseases of despair like addiction, suicide, depression, uh, other kinds of forms of mental illness. And, you know, this is like shit life syndrome, right? Like that that's mostly thought of in white communities. And I I was looking into suicide a little bit. And, you know, as you know, life expectancy for the first time is declining among white men because there's so many suicides and early deaths. Black people commit suicide disproportionately much less than any other population. And I mean, it's just one indicator. But what do you, th- why, why is that? Like, why at a time when things, I mean, why are you expressing so much optimism and, and talking about black joy and black s- self-care when we could be talking about, you know, the misery of, of the black community? Um, it, but 
maybe it's an end to a certain kind of gaslight. Anyway, maybe tell me, because that is a very interesting number. And it even seems like the baby bust of the coronavirus pandemic and the economic stress might not be afflicting the Black community as much. So in other words, people are reproducing, which is would seem to be a statement of confidence. So I listen to women. That's how I learn a lot. And I especially listen to Black women. And on 60 Minutes, I heard Sherilyn Eiffel, who's the head of the Legal Defense yeah. Fund, one of my heroes, ask a question like that. Oh, where does the hope come from? And she says it comes from our history. She says that whenever she hears the story of African-American history, it's a narrative that includes slavery and lynching and white-only water fountains and cemeteries and poison water in Flint and a cop's knee on the neck of George Floyd. She says whenever she hears that narrative, she never hears at the end, and then the Black people gave up. Hmm. We don't give up. We keep fighting. Uh, We keep trying to to save this nation's soul, and we do it. And then, you know, after slavery, the old Jim Crow, and then now we're working on the new Jim Crow. You mean the prison system? prison yeah. system, but real estate banking. Yeah. So I, I think that that's one yep. uh, part of it. But you asked an, another question that I wanted to re- respond to. The suicide. Yeah. Okay. So I actually talk about this in my book, Chokehold. So, you know, I have this chapter that I start very dramatically. So many black men told me not to publish this chapter. So I think about the risk that black men have of dying from homicide and the reality that most of the victims as well as most of the perpetrators are black men. So I don't like black on black crime because again, 90% of people who are victims of homicide are victimized by someone of their own race. And so white on white is just as descriptive as black on black. But there's no question that African-American men have a vastly disproportionate risk of being caught up in homicide, either as victims or as perpetrators. And so that's the gun violence. That's, I think, what President Trump is talking about when he says, you can't walk down the street in a black neighborhood and not be afraid, you know, people are going to kill you. And again, that's a way overstatement. That's an exaggeration. Uh, But There is this sense that black people, and especially young black men, are disproportionately victims of gun violence. And what I note in Chokehold is that's only true if you think about the risk from homicide. But if you include suicide, and most people who kill themselves uh, use some kind of weapon, often a gun, then the risk of a white man dying from gun violence is equivalent to the risk of a black man dying from gun violence. It's kind of startling uh, how those data points line up. 
And mm. one of the interesting things is that we think of suicide appropriately as a public health issue. Mm -hmm. And we've evolved. This freaks me out, but it actually used to be a crime for someone to kill themselves. So if they weren't successful, they could have been prosecuted for a crime. Yeah. yeah. So dumb. We now get it's public health, right? Oh, one day we'll have that same understanding uh, about the kind of gun violence that's not suicide, but that's homicide. We'll understand that. I want to talk about terrorism. Ellie Mistal, who I think we've we've both been on a panel with, has said that he considers this that we're in the midst of ethnic cleansing, a state-sponsored kind of ethnic cleansing, that the president is gunning for the police, clearly, and has created this kind of blob myth of the people in the dark shadows who are variously black or dressed in black, <laughs> Antifa figures, mm -hmm. um, who all need to be kind of wiped out. And that you know, if Yasser Arafat and the PLO had given this much encouragement to Hamas, we would make it clear that this was a kind of state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, Bill Barr has also been on the side of it. Or brown shirtism, or whatever it is. And you say, that, uh, rightly, that the states have reacted differently. But Trump ignoring the very real threat of white supremacist terrorism, of white terrorism, that is just, you know, week after week, whether the victims are black or white or Latinx, these threats are just real. You know, they're national security threats. They're, they're, they're threats to our safety. They're all those things. And he ignores those entirely in favor of this other thing that he's trying to frame as some kind of terrorism or, or mob something. And I wonder what you think about those vocabularies, basically, whether there's some kind of Gestapo move or brown shirt move or ethnic cleansing or, or terrorism that's useful to talk about in these contexts just for devising tactics, not for stoking outrage, but for figuring out what are we dealing with here? Like, are these the brown shirts who provided security for the Nazis and who then took it upon themselves to shoot Jews and liberals in the streets? That's maybe a way to think about the cops or maybe a way to think about this vigilante figure um, in Kenosha. Anyway, help. Yeah. So earlier we were thinking about how the movement for black lives has been strategic and that's responsible for its success. Yeah. I think the same thing is true about uh, how the president talks about communities of color and violence. I think it's strategic. And it started, well, I don't know. I guess you could say it started, you know, before he was president when he took out that ad in the New York tabloid suggesting that mm. the people who were then called the Central Park Five, who are now known as the Exonerated Five, uh, Trump said that they should be eligible for the death penalty, right? Yeah, I but, think he said it. That, was, that ad was even in the New York Times. Wow. And they took the money for it, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. So this has been ongoing, but I think he, 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 he made it clear in his inauguration address when he said, this American carnage stops right here mm -hmm. and stops right now. He was talking to, to white people, 
right? And he was saying that he was coming for black and brown people and that he was going to make a performance of it. So in that inauguration address, he basically teed up the themes for his re-election campaign. So he talked about people who were responsible for crime and gangs and drugs. And he said, now other people, that is white people, will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And so you can say a lot of things about Trump calling armed federal agents to Chicago and Minneapolis and everywhere else, but you can't say it should be unexpected because in his inauguration address, he basically announced that he was coming for people of color. And so, again, when we think about how, how that worked strategically for him, um, again, I, I think of, of security theater. So, <laughs> you know, there, there's no need, there's no reason to be tough on Black people. Trust me, centuries of slavery and segregation have been more than enough. Uh, we don't need any more, more toughness. Uh, but the idea of security theater is performances that, that make people feel safe, even if they don't actually enhance safety. And so that's what all this talk about these thugs in Black, a whole plane full of them, or when cops shoot Black people for no reason. Well, they just choke. It's, it's just an accident. Uh, again, it's all strategic, and it's, it's all a message to those people who are dying of whiteness, those people who all they mm -hmm. have is, is their, their whiteness. And those are the, mm -hmm. that, that's Trump's base, frankly. Mm -hmm. and, and so those are the people that uh, he's trying to appeal to. You know, what, what in terms of the concerns about national security, right, which is what terrorism is about, is there, you know, are there credible threats to national security? You know, one of the concerns that I have is the violence now uh, mm -hmm. that we see from the, the counter protesters, right? So Kyle mm -hmm. Rittenhouse, again, yeah. talk about American criminal justice in black and white. Uh, the black guy, we still don't know exactly why the police were running after him, but he goes to his car with three kids in the back, a seat of the car, and a cop shoots him seven times in the back for reasons that are still unclear. A white boy, and I'm saying boy because he's 17 years old, walks down the street of the same city, strapped with a big gun. People are yelling to the police. He just killed two people, which he did. And the police just watch him go by. Mm -hmm. Again, American criminal justice in black and white. And so the national security part is that this is destabilizing to our democracy. We ought to care because it's about black lives and whether they matter. And in Kenosha, the answer is not to the police. But another reason that that's not enough is because this is about the sustainability 
of our democracy, right? So the police, one of the things that the Movement for Black Lives acknowledges is that for, for all Americans, and especially for young black men, I'm, I'm sorry, for all black Americans, and especially for young black men, the police are the government. The police are the primary manifestation of the state in their lives. And a lot of these young people, they hate the police. And what that means is that they don't think that their government is serving and protecting them. Rather, they think that their government is targeting them. And again, that's destabilizing to the United States as a whole. Paul Butler is a law professor at Georgetown. He is also a former trial attorney with the Department of Justice and the author of Chokehold, Policing Black Men. Thank you so much for being here, Paul. Always love talking to you, Virginia. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Love us on your podcast app and then come over to see us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then... Join Slate Plus. I'm going to shame you this time. You just got to go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and sign up. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only, that's right, $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.